0: Ask the Dean, episode six. Hello, and thank you for checking out Ask the Dean, a production of Mapped.com and MedEd Media. If you haven't checked out Mapped.com yet, please do. It's available now. Free two-week trial. Just go to M-A-P-P-D.com. Go sign up for an account. You don't have to put in a credit card if you don't want to, and go check it out for free. Again, Mapped.com, M-A-P-P-D. .com. If you're a pre-med, my thinking is you should be using Mapped.com. If you're a year plus out from applying to medical school, Mapped is not an application tool. It is a guide to track your progress through the pre-med process and get feedback along the way. We're building in those feedback algorithms and much more. So stay tuned for a lot of amazing features coming your way in the next several weeks. Months. We're, we're going to be releasing new stuff. Hopefully, every two weeks, we'll be releasing updates to Mapped. So go check it out again, mapped.com. We have a great conversation today, again, with Dr. Scott Wright, Rachel Grubbs, my co founder on mapped and dr scott wright the former director of admissions at ut southwestern former executive director at tmdsas the first couple questions we cover are about assuming what the interview has does the interviewer have access to everything or just a couple things how many schools should you apply to online lab courses during the time of covid and much much more if you are interested, again, in MAPT, go check it out, mappd.com, and we're going to dive in to our session today. So as always, we're going to answer some questions here from the mapped uh, Facebook group that uh, all of you awesome pre-order people are part of. Um, if this is going out before mapped is available, potentially you can still pre-order mapped if you're watching this yeah. on YouTube. Um, yep. Yeah. What? Uh, any uh, any kind of housekeeping stuff, Rachel? I think for the for the current members, the folks who are watching this live, or maybe on the quick replay before it goes public, it's just if you haven't already filled out the spreadsheet telling us what schools you attend, you want to get on that because we want to put your schools in the de- database that we're building now. Um, we're going to eventually try to get essentially all American post secondary, but we're prioritizing. Heavily attended schools and member schools. So make sure you do that. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, potentially a pre order, but it depends on when this replay goes out. Yeah. Check map.com and see what's happening with uh, the yes. launch. Yes, yes, yes. So exciting. All right. Yes. <laughs> um scott before we jump in any any news on your front anything for us no no
1: everything's everything's going great we had a wonderful event on saturday with uh mm-hmm. lots of advisors and students and that was awesome yep. it was. really great to see those all those advisors and students from all around the country and uh yeah. it was really great
0: Well, we just got a whole bunch of people asking to join MAP. So maybe they want to watch this live. So I'm going to duck off Uh, screen and go approve their permissions. All right.
1: All right.
0: Um, All right. So let's look at um, this question here. Can we assume our readers have both our personal statement when they read our secondaries? both our personal statement. Uh, I'm assuming both our personal statement and ECs when they read our secondaries. I don't plan to refer to my personal statement in any way. However, I wanted to share experiences that were not directed directly related to medicine. In that sense, is it okay for our experiences in secondaries to not be medically related since we've mentioned most of those in the personal statement? Hmm. I have some thoughts. Yeah, go for it. So, in, in my – right, the, the general answer is almost always every medical school will do it differently, right? What what one reviewer has right. is going to be different right. from another reviewer. And True. and even if they have everything, right, they have your personal statement, extracurricular, secondaries, they may have a process where they're like, I, I want to avoid all looking at those things yeah. and I only want yeah. to look at these things. Yeah. So in, in terms of that, right <clears> – <throat> the the process is the process that's specific to the school specific to the admissions committee specific to the reviewer themselves now it's interesting in my mind secondaries are the easiest part of the application and and in my mind the reason for that is secondaries are asking a very specific question and students will try to get so fancy that my biggest feedback when when I'm reviewing secondaries is you didn't answer the question. Right. right <laughs> you got right, right, so right. fancy like oh, I need to tell this story and yep. you didn't answer the question. Answer yep. the question. And if you can make it into a story and whatever, great. If if not, answer the question. Yep. So yep. Yeah.
1: No, if, I completely agree with that. It's very <clears throat> it's very specific to the school and it's very specific within the school to whoever's reading it. And uh, whether it's a reviewer or an interviewer in terms of what they have access to, um, I think most schools, the reviewer at the very least has your personal statement um, and uh, potentially their your statements from the secondaries uh, as well. But I don't know that you can count on that necessarily. So I think I don't think you want to build too much your secondaries off of something else. Yep. You want to make it stand on its own and definitely, um, definitely um, have it an answer to the prompt. I mean, yeah. that's, that's my biggest gripe with a lot of students is I look at the prompt and I look at what they wrote and I think you didn't answer the prompt. You didn't answer the question. You didn't, yeah. you didn't answer
0: it. So. Yeah. Yeah. The, the individual documents as much as possible students really need to understand that the, the personal statement is an individual document your yeah. extracurriculars are an individual yeah. document your secondaries are individual documents i'll have students like I, I was reviewing one student i'm like well you don't have shadowing in your extracurricular activity list why don't you have that? I'm like, oh, it? like all those i put it in my personal statement i'm like no, I'm like no no that's not how it works right? <laughs> um But that's okay. Live and learn, and that's what we're here to educate and and help students. Now
1: I will. I I will say too that is it is important for students to be consistent in all these documents. And the last thing you want to do is have a reader read your personal statement and read something else and think, "Well, that seems to be (laughs) a a different person." (laughs) Yeah, different. I'm I'm unclear of what's going on here. So you want to be consistent. You know, you want. To see it as a big package uh, and that it is your marketing package, that you're marketing yourself. Yep. Uh, so so be consistent,
0: definitely. Yeah. I, li- I literally, li- literally uh, just got off of a podcast interview with a student who I helped a few years ago and, and he had life issues come up and kept delaying his application, but finally applied, applied to 40 schools, which is way too many. Wow. Um, but he got... 34 interview invites. And he went to 21, had wow. 16 acceptances. Wow. And and one of the biggest things that he talked about was the the consistency in his story and really yeah. showing who he was yep. as a person and not, oh, look at my amazing MCAT score and my amazing yep. grades. But but really here's who I am and why I'm doing this. Yeah. He said he thinks that was really key. And and obviously yeah. I, I helped him with that with this personal statement at, and his activity list. Um but I mean the the stats aren't enough always. Um, I, obviously, there are plenty of students with amazing Whoops. stats who don't get those <laughs> those numbers of invites and acceptances. So,
1: I'm sorry, I just clicked yeah. on something and up. That's okay. You're allowed. Um, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that.
0: You're allowed to mess it all up. <laughs> sorry. All right, here let's let's uh, let's do this one. All right. How many schools should one apply to? I remember reading that one should not apply to more than 25. Does this have any basis or can one apply to more than that?
1: Well, I think that the schools don't necessarily care how many schools, how how (laughs) many you're applying to. And in fact, I don't know in AMCAS, I don't think they even know how many you're applying. Uh, in TMDSAS, where I used to be, they school they do know how many schools you're applying to mm. and w- it, specifically which schools. And then they ask in the application, are you applying through AMCAS also? But yeah. it's not something that they hold against the students. Uh, it's not necessarily something they go, oh, well, you know, this student, this applicant's applying to 40 schools. So,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. you know, I don't think it's really... Even a relevant thing. I think the more relevant issue is how much money do you have? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, to be honest, yeah, uh, you know, applying to 40 schools, that guy spent a ton of money.
0: Lots of money. Yeah. And,
1: uh, and interviewing at 20 schools, that's an expensive, uh, yep. it, you know, it's it just so I think, I, I think the last time I heard, uh, from AMCAS, the average number of schools that students applied to, I, I want to say it was in the, fourteen or fifteen area.
0: It's up. It's seventeen now.
1: Seventeen.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's seventeen last I looked. Um and and I have I so I go to a, a dark place when I when I think of the double AMC and Amcas and, and everything, right? Over the last three or four years since I've been paying attention to those numbers. It, it was at 14 yeah. and then 15 and then 16 and now it's 17. Hmm. And the same thing is happening with ERIS as well for the residency applications. Students yeah. are applying to more and more and more residencies and right. When one of the first times, I don't think it was the first time we met. Was that was Toronto the first time we met in person? I, th- I think it was. Um, no, I, I think we met before that, but I, it may have been. I don't remember. Um, when when we met in Toronto and I gave a talk at the admissions summit about transparency yep. Yep. and getting medical schools to be more transparent, I think, right, and this is the dark side of me, I think that the AMC has a – advantage is the right word. they They have a – I can't think of the right word. It's too it's too late in the day. They 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 have a benefit to not be transparent with yeah. the the medical school's stats, right? The the cutoffs. Uh they right. they have they have I what's the right I can't think of the word. Uh anyway. They they had <laughs> I get it. <laughs> they, they have this bias to not be as transparent as possible. Right. Because then students apply to more schools. Right. And every school that a student applies to at AAMC gets more money. Yep. Right. So even going from, right, if you look at going from 14 to 17, which is the last three or four years, it's Mm -hmm. it's increased. Mm -hmm. That's three extra schools per student. And I think last time I looked, it was about 52,000 students applying. So 52,000 times three is 156,000. Extra applications going out, right? yeah. Yep. Definitely. Times what is it? Thirty-seven dollars or forty? Right. F- times forty bucks, whatever, right? Yeah. Right. Six million dollars, Scott. It's just yes. oh, it's just a couple million. Yes. Like yes, it's so. I don't yes. know, right? Is, no. is that why they're not transparent? I don't know, but mm-hmm. it certainly doesn't hurt. <laughs> it doesn't hurt.
1: Yeah, I to put a plug in for the Texas schools and I love Texas. the way we. The way we yeah. do things in Texas, Team DSAS has a flat fee. Yep. For it doesn't matter if you apply to one school or all the schools; it's a flat rate, so it doesn't yeah. benefit them any at all. Yeah. Financially, for you yeah. to, because the way all, we always looked at it was, we're doing this essentially the same amount of work for one school as we are for every school. Exactly. And but there's no extra steps. There's no extra anything. It's all yeah. data that's being done by a computer that's dumping it out yeah. to the schools or whatever. So, yeah. you know, I think that that's the legit, the upfront, the the sort of uh, can we even say ethical way mm. to do it? Yeah. But you know, I think so. I'm just I'm just. Putting that putting that yeah. out
0: there. Put, Just, putting it out there. Right. And <laughs> in, in a comus right? So let's let's speak. So we talked double AMC, we talked TMDSAS. A comus is a little bit different because they use a third party vendor, right, for their application. Right. And so the right. money goes to the third party vendor for right. the most part right. and right. not to a Comus a Comis or Acom. Right. Uh right. so a little bit different there. But anyway. A bit yeah. So can you apply to you can apply to 170 schools if you want yeah. to. Yeah. It's As it's, many it's many only a financial barrier at yep. that point. Um yep. I typically recommend no more than 25 just cuz there's so much work and so that maybe that's yeah. where the student got 25 yeah. from. Yeah, uh, it gets, because it gets, when yeah. you
1: when you start adding on all those secondaries, not only not only is there the secondary fee, but it's just a lot of work. Yep. Yeah, you're,
0: you're right. It is. Yeah. Yep. appexpenses.com If you go to appexpenses.com, that's the um, I have a calculator on my website for calculating what What's gonna applying to medical school mm-hmm. is going to be estimated yep. at. So. Yep. Good idea. Yes. Good idea. Good
1: idea. Oh, yeah. Good idea. Look at that.
0: All right. Magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So with universities moving to limit in-person classes next semester, will medical schools accept online lab courses? Yeah, I think. Medical I think schools they're going to have, have to, to adjust to, yeah. for years.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if the medical schools are having to make adjustments to their own curriculum, then, you know, they're going to be enormously flexible with, with the, Students coming in with online stuff. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I think a lot of students are worried about, right? I have to take my freshman chemistry lab online, but I'm not applying for obviously three years. Are they still going to accept? I'm like, yes. Like, their medical schools are going to have these kind of uh, adjusted policies in place until all of the COVID students get through the process. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, you're exactly right.
0: Completely. Can you keep saying that, Scott? I, I really like it. You you're are right. You're right. I agree. You are exactly
1: right. You're amazing. Exactly right. amazing. Now, let That's me just hasten to add that I've been right since the day I was born.
0: <laughs> I thought I was wrong once, but I was mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So let's see. Let's go to this one here. I'm looking into a sexual assault hotline that is area-specific. When you get a call from someone who is going to report it uh, or get a workup at a hospital, you go into the hospital police station and meet with them. Have you heard of anything like this? Super excited about it, but I feel it may be too good to be true. (laughs) Any thoughts on this? That's interesting. I I Uh, obviously have heard of crisis hotlines, sexual assault hotlines, um, but this is, it seems like a little bit of a hybrid of... You you are the kind of first responder from a yeah, from a phone yeah. call standpoint, and the the person to go meet them. I think that's amazing.
1: Well, I think it's amazing. I, I would hope that there's an intense amount of training that goes on for that, yep. uh, and uh, but it sounds pretty cool to me. It also sounds emotionally incredibly draining. Huge, uh, yeah. yeah. So. I mean, I had a guy on a um, – I had a friend who um, was on a uh, suicide hotline, had trained to go through that. After his first call, which did not go well, by the way, he quit because he, he couldn't handle it, just yeah. the emotional damage and, and baggage.
0: yeah. That, that kind of stuff is hard, um, from a, from a phone call. It, it's actually, it's, it's interesting when you said that the, the first thing I thought of was it's probably very similar to what we're seeing, you know, when I say we back when I was in the military as a flight surgeon, mm-hmm. what we're seeing from drone pilots. So oh, wow. the, yep. The situation of being on a suicide hotline or crisis hotline, sexual assault hotline, whatever it may be, is you're either at home getting a phone call or answering a computer call, whatever it is, or you go into a a central call location. Um, It's very similar to this, like I'm going to war, right? I'm I'm going to have these traumatic events or talking to people going through traumatic events, and then I'm going to go home yeah right and we're seeing this with drone pilots there there's this huge disconnect between deploying as a pilot and going overseas and and being in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever we are in way too many places, right. uh, being at war and being at war knowing, right, I'm at war day and night, day and night, day and night, and mm-hmm. then I get to go home mm-hmm. versus being a drone pilot where you go into a box here in the United States, you fly around, you do some terrible things, and then you go home and have dinner with your family. There's a yeah. huge disconnect yep. that, that drone pilots are, are really struggling with.
1: Right, right makes, I mean, it makes total sense that that would be the case. Yeah. And uh, so, but, you know, getting back to the question, I, I think it sounds awesome. Number one, if, if it does exist, if there's a lot of training involved and if you feel like you can handle it on, on an emotional level. Yeah,
0: that, that's great. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one where, um, I would make sure that e- either, the the service that you are working for provides you services as well to be able yeah. to talk through all of that stuff, or you go and and be able to talk Unloaded. with other people yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. That's interesting. I would uh, for that student who asked that question, if if you can let us know either privately or publicly who that service is, so that we can send other students, um, potentially to them for for other students who need experience. I, I think that's a Awesome thing, yeah. Um, all right. Any other questions there, Rachel?
1: Yeah, there's one here we go. There, there we go. <clears throat> wow, <clears throat> is it better to ask a professor for a letter of recommendation as soon as you finish their course, even though you won't be applying for another year, or is it better to ask the professor for the letter the year you're applying even though you may not have communicated with the professors well so the the easy answer to this is you got to keep communicating with
0: them. <laughs> there you go who said you can't keep communicating <laughs> i know <with>
1: them? <laughs> i mean i would get i'd go by their office say hi i would email them hey just wanted to check in or you know go by their class or, you know don't be a you know don't stalk <laughs> them or anything but uh, but you know, especially if you've really connected with them, I keep in touch. That's the key there. I don't think you answer, I don't think you ask for a letter if it's a year ahead of time. They're gonna forget or they're gonna not you know whatever.' It's, it's just awkward. Yep. Uh, but I think you keep in touch with them. You, you go by their office hours just to say hi, just to, you know um, what, tell them what's going on with you and stuff like that and just keep in contact with them so they know who you are. And then, and then you're ready to answer, to ask for that letter, uh, later on. Yeah. Uh, but I think a year ahead of time is is probably a little, a little much.
0: Yeah. So I, I, the, the general kind of feedback that I give the students is set the expectation, right? Always, always, always be transparent about your expectations. And, and even from the beginning, right. Of, of saying like, Hey, professor Smith, I know it's the beginning of the year. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about your class. I I'm applying to I'm planning on applying to medical school in a few years, and yeah. and um, I I think I would probably love a letter of recommendation from you. Yeah, I, obviously, absolutely. hopefully you have have a little bit of of a relationship to to even start there, but don't wait until the very last day to go, Hey, Professor Smith, can I get a letter of recommendation? And they're like, who are you? Right. You're setting (laughs) that expectation. And then you're even asking like, what, what are things that I I can potentially do to, um, get a better letter of recommendation from you or things that I can do to, to continue to kind of stay in contact with you. But, but even from an expectation standpoint of, uh, hey Professor Smith, I'm not applying for a few years. I'd love to stay in contact with you yeah. over the next over the next couple of years. I'll, I'll email you once a semester, maybe um, keep you up to date with what I'm up to, and, and uh, ask for a letter of recommendation when I'm ready yeah. to apply. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And most faculty are going to say, "Oh, sure," you know, especially if you've kind of established a rapport with them already.
0: Yeah, for you sure. are not the first person that's likely going to ask for a letter of no. recommendation. So. No. They know the game.
1: And if you are, that's a little concerning.
0: (laughs) They could be a brand new professor.
1: Oh, well, okay. That's true.
0: (laughs) Everyone's got to start somewhere. I'm sure this has been mentioned before, but if we're having a hard time getting recent shadowing experience due to COVID, could virtual meetings with physicians count where they mentor one-on-one and talk about their specialties? Yeah. This virtual shadowing thing is becoming more and more popular. Yeah. No,
1: I, I I definitely think it's a, it's an option that you have to take advantage of because, you know, the, there's not a whole lot that you're going to be able to do uh, with COVID around. I mean, there's some enormous limitations on yeah. <clears throat> what what you're going to be able to do, and and I think that kind of experience, a one-on-one kind of mentorship sort of thing, uh, it does limit you in terms of what you're seeing in ter- with patient care and patient interaction, but it does still give you a lot of information from the, from the physician. It gives you a lot of uh, ability to ask them questions and to bounce stuff off of them and for them to introduce you to what they do on a daily basis or whatever. I, you know, I I'm always of the mind that you, you let you do whatever they'll let you do, even in the non COVID situation, whatever they'll let you do, if they'll let you follow them around, if they'll let you work in their office and every now and then, you know, see what's going on or anything that you can do, um to get that patient contact to get contact with that physician uh I think it's an awesome experience and and certainly within the context of covid it's it's uh i would say that would be you know fantastic if you can do that yeah.
0: I mean, look, shadowing is probably the the least exciting uh, and least beneficial thing in 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 the grand scheme of things. Right. It's it's exciting. Students love it because they're like, oh, my God, I'm finally like I'm in a clinic or I'm in the hospital. Uh, But it's it's for the majority of students, it's super passive and you're just kind of yeah. staring into space the whole time, watching yeah. the doctor talk to patients. Like yeah. you literally can get more information watching, watching ER and watching house. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so these yeah. these one-on-one yeah. phone calls, that's the benefit of shadowing is that connection oh, sure. with the physician asking oh, questions. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not usually, it's not literally being in the room. Uh, it's yeah. just fun. It's just fun.
1: Yeah. That's all just yeah. fun. Absolutely. And you know, I think the, the the thing about COVID and all this is that medical schools, just like we were talking about with the courses, medical schools are going to realize that this puts a big uh, problem in terms of students getting uh, volunteer experiences or shadowing experiences or whatever. Yep. That's not going to be lost on them. They're going to take that in consideration. But I think the the point here is creativity. Yep. If you're creative. And you, you find solutions and you create things that are going to be solutions for that, such as what this student has suggested. I think that's going to be a, really seen as a lot more valuable. You know, that's the kind of student I would want to see is, wow, look at what they did in the context of all this. Look at what they created. Look at what they managed to develop with this, uh, with this physician or these series of physicians or whatever. So creativity counts.
0: Yeah, definitely. For sure. Um is there a consolidated information regarding indebtedness and residency match for medical schools? Thank you. Consolidated. Consol I don't think there's consolidated. Mm. Right. We have kind of average indebtedness that we know yeah. of. Um yeah. I, I think medical schools keep track of the the average indebtedness of their yep. students. Yep. Um, but I don't yep. I don't think that's published anywhere. Uh,
1: I think it's a case by case basis with medical schools. I know yeah. a lot of them will say, particularly those that are on the low end, they really like to, you know, say, oh yeah, we, our indebtedness is thirty percent lower than anybody else or yeah. whatever,
0: bragging rights. So,
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I definitely think I don't think that what you're looking for is sort of this clearinghouse of information. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know that that exists. I, I,
0: my my question would be, why is that important? So, it, average indebtedness to me, a, and it's got to be interested to hear your thoughts. when When I talk to students about picking medical schools, I never say pick a medical school based on on tuition costs right what right. the their annual budget is if right. you have multiple acceptances and you're choosing between financial aid packages at different ones great go to the one that is the best fit and it and is the cheapest yes but from a i'm gonna go and pick and make my school list based on the cost yeah. then there's a school that's maybe five thousand dollars a year over the the arbitrary line that you set that mm-hmm. would have been the best fit for you, yeah. that would have made you succeed, that would have helped you match into a, a more prestigious match or specialty or whatever it is. And your salary is going to be $50,000 a year more because of that. And now all of a sudden the, the 20 grand that you didn't want to spend over the course of four years, that is like $10 a month over the course of your, your payments or whatever it is, right. Is all out the window. So it's, I mean, it's obviously being on this side of it, it sounds like flippant to go, don't worry about the money. But really when you look at, and when you look at the big picture, it's, it's not that big yeah, of a deal. Right. Now, obviously, between a Texas school and a $70,000 a year private school, that's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, there's, there's some things at play there. But mm-hmm. um, so that's from the financial side. From the match side, again, I always talk to students don't pick a school based on the match list. Right. right? The, the school doesn't determine the match list. Right. The students applying to residency determine the match list. Yep. And, and I, I give this example all the time. We had a professor at New York Medical College who students loved. She was a, a radiologist. She was in the radiology program director. Students loved her. And students would apply to residency, to radiology residency, because of her right they would go oh i came in wanting to do this one thing but you're awesome i want you as a mentor i'm going to apply to radiology now because of you and so you have these skewed pockets of of specialties at different schools based on the mentors available yeah and and in my specialty stories podcast right i, I talk to all of these physicians about the specialty they chose and scott it's like 90% of them are like i had a i had an amazing mentor Mm-hmm. Who practiced this specialty? And I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh, this is a really cool specialty. I think I want to look into that too."
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think, and you've probably mentioned this b- before that the, the my latest information was that somewhere around seventy five percent
0: of students
1: yeah. when they enter, they think this, and then they exit, and they're doing something totally different than what they
0: thought. Perfect point.
1: Yep. Yeah, they they came in thinking I'm going to be a surgeon and I'm going to rock and roll and they go yeah. they leave being a psychiatrist yeah. or
0: something. And else. they and they picked their school based on the match list for the specialty they thought they wanted they taught, to do and yes. now they wanted to do something else Something's and that totally other different. school that they Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I think you know it gets to into the overthinking part of it mm-hmm. a lot and and I think you don't overthink. You you look at basics, but my I'm a, I'm a real advocate when you're looking at schools you got to determine fit. And, and, and I think that this is the kind of thing where it doesn't, it doesn't go well on an Excel spreadsheet. No. You know, you can keep track of a lot on an Excel spreadsheet. What you can't keep track on there is your intuition about yeah. how did I feel about this school? Yeah. How, you know, when I went to interview there, when I talked to the students at that school, what, what feeling did I get? Did I feel like this is a place I could be? Or did I feel, eh, you know, whatever, so I th- I feel I am very uh, much a proponent of, of of journaling after you interview at a school and journal about what how did I feel about the school when I walked on the campus how did I feel about it when I was in the neighborhood where it was how did I feel about it how did I feel yep. when I was talking to the faculty or the students or whatever yep. and uh, just get into your n- get out of your head a little bit and get into your heart a little bit
0: mm-hmm. and
1: really think about
0: that so yeah rachel make a note for mapped i don't think we have that anywhere on our uh on our list about kind of tracking interviews and yeah I, post, i'm gonna post interview discussions yeah, that's that's yeah. uh definitely needs to be included yeah absolutely um yeah it's it's interesting i, I think i i think schools do a disservice because mission and vision statements get very generic (laughs) like every student's like i've read all of the vision statements the mission statements they all sound alike after like the first 10. Um, and so i i know we we have talked privately about doing a podcast where we reach out we talk to the deans of admissions director of admissions the deans of the school um to get more personal and and really try to get the culture the heart of the school out yeah. um yeah. out yeah. off of off of just a, a website
1: yeah
0: absolutely <clears throat> absolutely so agreed. <laughs> agreed
1: agreed agreed
0: oh. when you say how important a strong upward trend can be how many credits years semesters minimum should reflect this eight hundred <laughs> 42 yeah. the answer is 40 yeah. at least 42. <laughs> uh, right so so students needing to recover from poor poor GPA poor grades mm-hmm. whatever it may be um, it's a very common question like how yeah. long do I need to get into this grade repair mode is it is it one year is it a certain number of credits what does that look like
1: yeah, yeah. You know, to me, I think it it depends a little bit on the the bigger picture of the student. Um, I don't know that there's a, a certain number that you can say. Well, you need this many semesters, or you need this many credits, or whatever, to be able to uh, to be able to recover or to show that there's that trend. Uh, I think it it really depends a lot on the student and what the what the trend previous has looked like. Um, and what their story is? It, was there some event that happened that caused the problems? That now the trend is three semesters, and wow, you're great, and everything's—you know—things have really turned around, and it's a very clear of a before event and an after event. And so, um, so I think it depends a little bit on on, on that. Now, what I would say, um, in general, this is kind of a broad general statement. But I would say, in general, um, that the more is, more is always better. You know, the more credits you have with uh, on a trend, or the, the the more credits you have as a postback, for example, uh, the the more credible that trend is going to be. That more credible that um, new postback GPA is going to be. You know, I, I used to see a lot of students who would come in and say, "Oh, you know, I've really picked things up. I've got, you know, I've got twelve hours." of really great work. And, 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 I was, I would always say that's fantastic. Number one, that is fantastic. But number two is you had 120 hours of <laughs> bad stuff. Yep. 12 hours is, is great, but you know, there's gotta be, you know, you, there's gotta be a little bit more going on there. So I, I think it depends a little bit on the student uh, and on the event and kind of what, what the picture is here. But generally I would say, you know, more is, is better.
0: Yeah. It's, it's funny. As you were talking about that, the thing that popped into my mind was um, looking at COVID graphs and, and more darkly the COVID death graphs. If you go and look at COVID deaths over the course of this pandemic, the weekends always have, have very little deaths because visit, hospitals work don't work as much on weekends i'm like I, yeah. the body the body doesn't care what day of the week it is right why why do why do, why do hospitals actually observe weekends but anyway yeah. um the it, the deaths go down and so it's it's almost like that same thing of like oh look my grades are better right The deaths have gone down and then monday hits you're like oh wait never mind yeah. <laughs> um, you need you need that sustained yeah exactly trend there yes yep, yep um there's another question that came in that we can't pop up on screen Uh, it's a very common question about being a personal uh like caregiver primary caregiver for a family member or a friend uh and and whether or not that should go in the clinical experience section whether or not they could count it as clinical experience or should they only mention that potentially in a personal statement if it was a meaningful experience
1: yeah that's a good I, i mean this is not unusual um Students will be caregivers for, you know, sometimes it's a sibling, sometimes it's a grandparent or a parent or, um, and, you know, often there's a pretty dire situations where the, where the family member is, uh, you know, disabled, uh, perhaps, you know, it, it, there's a variety of things, but, you know, you, you could be giving injections, you could be certainly doing uh, vital signs, uh, you could be doing um You know, there's a lot of different things that might be going on there that would really count as clinical experience. And and I think to me, I don't I don't ever say, okay, yes or no, necessarily. I think in order for a student, I don't I don't think it's a bad thing for a student to include that as a clinical experience in their activities. Uh, I think what you have to do is be true to yourself and not make it sound like something that it's not. Um, so if you're very clear on what it was, what you did, and what you got out of it, that's the key. Yep. It's not about oh, they're going to think this or they're going to. Th-. You don't know what they're going to think. You know, yep. you can't live. You can't live your life. You can't create your application based on what you think somebody's going to think that you've never even met before. Uh, so I think be honest about your experiences, why you included it in your uh, in your um, activities. Uh, clinical activities, and if you want to bounce off of that and talk about it a little bit more in an essay, a personal statement, or something like that, and then that's fine. It, it gives you the ability to explore it more than you have in those 300 characters or whatever in uh, the activity list, and then obviously, if this was a, a, a very meaningful experience for you, and it's going to go in that list of most meaningful experiences that you've had, then you have even a little bit more ability to go into a, a more so, but I, I've seen this quite a few times on applications where students really, and, and I would say more times than not, it makes total sense to me why yeah. they would include it in there based on what they're saying about it. So, Ryan, what, what are your thoughts on
0: that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and the double AMC has even said, right, uh, five kind of more uncommon clinical experiences. I, is being a caregiver yeah. for a loved one or a friend yeah. or whatever. Uh, and it was something that I did when when I was rejected the first time around uh, to medical school. One of the things that I was missing was clinical experience. I didn't really know what it was or knew the importance of it. And so when I moved out here to Colorado after I, I graduated from University of Florida, I I was a live-in caregiver for a family yeah. friend who yeah. she, she had undergone... Um, hip surgery, I think, um, so long ago. I have a terrible memory. Uh, hip, hip surgery and uh, needed someone to help take care of her, take care of her cats yeah. and yeah, some other stuff. And that was a, a big uh, experience for me to to take care of someone. And then I, I shadowed an orthopedic yeah. surgeon and, and yeah. got some other experiences.
1: And, you it. know, that the, the other thing about the, the caregiver thing, depending a little bit on the extent, like for years, for, for what you're describing, Ryan, I mean, that was a big commitment on your part. Uh, you know, this was a, not a minor thing. You know, you were, you were a live in caregiver and you were, you know, definitely taking care of that person in a variety of different ways, which is a big commitment as opposed to, well, my grandmother needs her medication every morning. And so I'm going to get her pills already and take, you know, that's not to downplay that experience, but it is to say, that it again it depends on what the situation is yeah. as to how much you want to talk about it and how meaningful it really could have been for you yeah um so yeah
0: yeah yeah it's it's interesting right it's it, we always go back to the same thing of like oh i i did this is this clinical experience and i'm like i don't know right what did you do tell me specifically and so being a a caregiver could be like me where i'm a live in helping out as much as possible versus caregiver was oh i just needed help grandma clean up around the house right, right, right. Yeah, uh, or exactly. give pills or do the grocery yeah, shopping i'm, I'm yeah, doing i'm yeah, a caregiver yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. it's all about what 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 did yeah. you do yeah, yeah. exactly uh, this exactly. is an interesting one it is. <laughs> this is an interesting one for future <laughs> physicians who do not want to be forced to see patients under a time constraint where do you recommend they find a job after residency
1: it's called you have you're a self-employed physician and you control it yourself oh, yeah I mean you know the, the and you know boy I, you probably I mean definitely know a lot more about this Ryan than I do but my mind is you know the trend in medicine just as it is in dentistry uh, and a variety of other health professions is corporate yep. you know is the the corporations are taking over clinics, they're taking over hospitals, they're taking over, you know, a variety of different healthcare settings. And so that corporation, or that, the the management is going to dictate how long that patient uh, contact can last. And they're going to hold you accountable for that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so if you are somebody that wants to control that, seemingly, you don't want to be in a situation where, you know, so maybe you want to go out and somewhere and create your own, you know, clinic and, and do your own thing. So you can, you can control that yep. or you don't want to be in it. So, I mean, that, that's my initial thought, but I'm sure Ryan, you've got a lot more thoughts. about
0: that. <sighs> Yeah. At, in today's day and age. Right. And, and I have literally gone through this with my wife who went from working at Kaiser, right. A big, big center where where you're an employee and you're told what your schedule is and and how many patients you're going to see to to make the money to to pay for your salary um to her going and opening up her own private practice and she she opened up a private practice with so my my wife's a neurologist she opened up a private practice or or however you want to call it uh, with a internal medicine physician who was also looking at opening up her own practice. And so the two of them got together and said, Hey, we, we both want to open up practices. Let's share resources, right? Yeah. Let's uh, find a, find a place and, and you can pay for one room out of the three and and we can split costs with our front desk person and with our medical assistant and, and everything else. Um, even with that, right? the The ability to get money from the insurance companies yep, and and yep. what you're able to charge insurance companies yep. and all of the overhead of of needing to rent the space and pay the salaries and do everything else My wife, a lot pressure she she wasn't taking home any money. Yep. she was she was seeing patients to pay everyone to be able to see patients, right? yeah, yeah. The, she, she would have done just as well, making zero money staying at home doing nothing. With with zero risk involved, right, and 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 not all of the extra work, Me- medicine is crazy in that way. And yeah. so, if if you're going into this and you know you want to not have any time constraints, know that you're probably not going to make a lot of money, uh, yeah. if any. Um, yeah. And and it's it's possible. There's concierge medicine, m- mission, uh, medicine that. Um, <laughs> uh is becoming more and more popular where you kind of charge uh like a membership fee or the the, the the patients pay a membership fee to be able to be part of the small number of people that you're able to see and then you see um uh, that mm-hmm. small cohort of people mm-hmm. it's it's hard. That's not yeah. that's not what medicine is right now.
1: Yeah. And that's not a population of people that a lot of students want to
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know they're looking at I want to reach out to people who who don't have re- resources. Yep. Concierge mission, that's not what that is. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, Big questions. Yes.
0: Medical school I'm interested in offers an MD-MBA program. Given just how much business and medicine is intertwined these days, is it worth it to also go for this extra business learning, or can you learn most of the business aspects while on the job? Whew. I like I'll, this question. I'm going to give you that one, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. So it, it depends on what the goal is, right? What's the end goal? Um, mm-hmm. Do you just want to have business knowledge? You don't need the MBA. Mm-hmm. If you want to go and be an executive at a hospital, then having yep. the MBA will give you that street cred, mm-hmm. which yep. isn't street cred, it's a, it's a diploma, uh, right. the, the school cred um, to, to be able to open some doors, right? And, and it might be a requirement to say, hey, we're, we're looking for physicians who do have an MBA yeah. To, yeah. to fill this position, yeah. um, right? For me, I run two businesses for the most part. I don't have an MBA. I just, <laughs> I learn on the job. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I learn what I need to learn. I, I think uh, an MBA is only useful f- if your career aspirations lead you to the, the world where an MBA is going to open doors for you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are in, in a lot of metropolitan areas in particular. <clears throat> there are uh, MBA programs that are designed specifically for practicing physicians. Yep. Uh, so you can, uh, that are tailored for, uh, not that dual MD MBA programs aren't, but I don't think there is much. Mm. And I think that what the benefit is for practicing physicians get, getting an MBA that is really crafted very specifically for them is it can be beneficial. In a lot of different ways, particularly as a, as you do exactly what you were saying, Ryan, as you know going along even more so what your goals are, what your career aspirations are, what you want that profession for yep. yourself to look like. You're going to know that more and more as you go along. And so I, I would say, you know, MD, MD MBA programs are, are fine. There's there's several in, in Texas where I where I'm at. Uh, they're not uncommon around the country. And, you know, if it's, if, if it interests you, sure, why not? But, uh, and some of, you know, you have to look at this. Some of them add another year to your, to to the uh, timeline. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So there are four plus one others. They kind of do it along the way, which makes it really tough, I think. And so, uh, they, you know, fold it all into, into a, still a four year curriculum. But, uh, so I think, you you know, if if you want to work, you know, you're already working your butt off in medical school. If you want to work your butt off even more, then...
0: <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah, right. um, what What you were mentioning, the one specifically for physicians, if you want to Google that to get some information, it's called mm-hmm. a physician executive MBA. It's a very yeah. small subset yeah. of, um, uh, of MBA programs. And then there's this other thing that has been... M- more popularized within the last several years called the certified physician executive. Mm -hmm. It's, it's similar to an MBA, but it's not an MBA. It's this other kind of certification program for those who want to be leaders in healthcare, um, where they, they teach you. It's, it's very obviously very specific for physicians as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Am I ready? When will it be starting? Soon. Soon. Yeah. <laughs> we're excited about it.
1: Yep. It's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Yep. That's where you apply maps.com slash ready to submit your application. It it will take some time to go through. I'm excited, Scott, as as uh, we were working through this. I'm excited to be able to have students who are on mapped right tracking all their stuff on mapped go hey i want to be part of am i ready and they're mm-hmm. just like here's access to my mapped I know, that'd be awesome. we can show it all it'd be so good right now you have to fill out a stinky google form but yeah. uh that's no, that's how we'll do it
1: yeah it's yeah it's soon
0: yeah well we'll probably record our first batch here in the next probably two or three weeks yeah
1: yeah that's uh, that's super yeah. exciting to me i'm i'm pumped about this
0: awesomeness <laughs> You're going to be a superstar, Scott. You're going to, oh. you're you're a YouTube Wait. star, podcast star, <laughs> blogging star.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, it's exciting. She says that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be awesome for sure.
0: I think so. Good. I think those are all the questions. Should yeah. we wrap
1: up now? Yeah. We're almost, almost to the end of the hour anyway. And so, yeah.
0: let's uh let's actually let's take two seconds i'm gonna show a a new feature on mapped um, since we're here uh let me log in make sure i can share my screen here so this uh new feature it's a small thing but it's it's one that we're like why can't we do this so um Here's my mapped account, and if, if you're watching this and you haven't seen us play with mapped yet, so this is this is what mapped looks like right now. It's still very bare bones for the most part, but this was a fun thing that we did uh, just recently to where we'll be able to track your practice scores, your your MCAT scores. Yep. So you can come in here, uh, and we're gonna polish up this interface and say, okay, I got a. I got a 130 on Chem Fizz. I got a 130 on Cars because I'm awesome. 130 on Biochem and Psychos is like, so terrible, so I only got a 126. <laughs> um, right? It, it has your score there, um, and we need to put in percentiles. We'll figure all this out. Um, uh, but then we can say, "Oh, this was this was just my practice test, right?" And then you can go, "Oh, this was a Kaplan practice test. It was full length four, and so we'll be able to track all this stuff too." And again, through kind of the algorithm and what we're doing, we can go, hey, like your MCAT is in is in two weeks, and your practice scores you haven't you haven't crossed five hundred yet, have you thought about right delaying your application yeah. or delaying your MCAT? Right, um, and we'll be able to give some information around that. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, awesome. Super excited about that. Yeah,
1: that's great. That's really great.
0: Uh, if you're watching this, do you, um, do, you have any, do you want to see something in maps? Well, I'll have it open here. Um, let's have a couple more minutes we could do. Um, there's another question that, that popped up. Yeah, it ahead just popped answer up. Answer this here. How much overlap should there be between a regular personal statement and the MD, PhD dual degree personal statement? Ooh, I like this question because it's pretty straightforward.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, there probably should not be much of an overlap, depending on, you know, I I guess I don't understand if you're, it depends on the school in terms of what they're doing. Scott,
0: Scott, let me me clarify a little bit. I I bet you this student is asking the question, not realizing that there's two extra essays on the MD-PhD application. Right, right.
1: Yeah, maybe not. Because, you know, I think the key here is that what MD-PhD programs are looking at is not only, you know, they're mostly interested in what does your research experience look like? You know, what what have you done in terms of research? And almost always, particularly with the NIH funded, the, the medical Sciences training program MD-PhD programs. And if you don't know what that means, then you need to find out what that means. This <laughs> is the key difference between the two. Yep. the, 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 the NIH-funded programs as opposed to those that are not NIH-funded. Uh, but what they're looking for is not only what what is the basic science research you've done, uh, what does that look like, but they are mo- mostly interested in, do you get it? Do you understand what, you, what it was you were doing? And you'd be surprised how often MD-PhD programs look at a student that's got a lot of research and they don't really have a clue what it was that they were doing. Yeah. You know, they, they, they're very mechanically oriented in terms of make me, mechanically. I was doing this and I was doing that. <laughs> and I was doing this and I was doing that, but yeah. they never really got the full picture of what this why? was all about. Yeah. Why, why did was you I do, yeah. yeah. Why was I doing that? Why was I, you know? And, and so that's the key. It's not just research. It's about what you understood about what you were doing that yeah. they're looking for. And that's where, the MD PhD personal the MD MD PhD essay or series of essays depending on the schools and stuff is that's what they're looking for. Because they got lots of applicants who have done X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But they're looking for X, Y, and Z and they want to know that you you know what X, Y, and Z is all about. Yep. So that's the key.
0: Yeah. The the M D PhD it's it's interesting because right you're you're applying almost to two different Institutions, right? Yeah, the, the PhD yeah. side of it and the the MD side of it, and All you right. have to you have to get both people uh, to sign off on you. In um, in my mind, the 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 personal statement is the same. It's why do you want to be a doctor, right? Yep, Period. Yep, yep. And then when you when you're applying dual degree, the 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 PhD it will. It's it's like basically why do you want to be an empty PhD? Yeah, and then you yeah. have your most significant research experience essay right, as well. Right, so Right. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, when Doctor Gray shared his screen of mapped, is that what we have access to in the fall once mapped is officially launched? Yeah. So that that is mapped. So this uh, lovely piece of tech here, um, when you get access to it. Um, and it may be a little bit different as we as we work through and fix bugs and offer suggestions on on what we're doing, but this will be the the platform yeah um, so. yeah.
1: yeah absolutely. <clears throat> it's very exciting
0: all right, let's wrap up um yeah. if, if there were some extra questions we didn't get to, hopefully mm. next week we can get yeah, to them absolutely. Uh, another awesome ask the Dean. Thank you. Dr. Yep. Scott, Wright. Dr. Ryan gray. <laughs> um, fun times, fun times.
1: Yeah. Fun times. And thank you, Rachel Groves, in the, in the background for all that you do. You're the, the, uh,
0: the original RG, although That's I'm right. the original RG cause I'm older. So I think I'm older. I, older? <laughs> I love that you think that <laughs> 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 I, I thought I was older than you. no. Yeah. You were born in the 80s, right? I was born in 80, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, uh, yeah no. Yeah, no. <laughs> you're, both, you're both children,
1: as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I was born the year Star Wars came out. <laughs> so, let me guess. That was 77. Yep. Yeah, yeah,
0: 77. I'm, the nerd so I'm for just knowing a that. little bit older than you, <laughs> just a little bit. And well, we got, we got Boomer over there. Yeah. Oh, shut up.
1: <laughs> I think technically, Gen X, like me, I'm right on no, the. No, I'm
0: time. right on
1: the. I'm right. I'm still a boomer, ba- barely a boomer.
0: Okay. I am a little
1: bit, but I was born in '63, the year of the Kennedy assassination, so okay. I was actually born uh, very close to the Kennedy assassination. So.
0: You were also born the year that started. Can you see my TARDIS up there? No. Afternoon.
1: Oh Doctor, right! Doctor That's Who first right. aired on the yeah. Kennedy assassination date. Anyway, listeners, thank you so much for yeah, we, to love we love you. <laughs> we love you. We love you. See you next week. Go
0: ahead. Bye. And all bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. All right. So there you go. Another mapped ask the dean in the books we do our ask the deans live for our mapped members exclusively in the facebook group so if you are a part of map go check out our facebook group at mapped members is just search for that you'll find it and just enter the email address that you used set to sign up for mapped to come into the group and you can participate in our weekly Ask the Dean live streams. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Ask the Dean.